looking to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We are looking at verses 4 and following. Last week we covered verses 4, 5, and 6, and this morning we'll build on that with verses uh, 7 through 11. Scripture says, uh, the author to the Hebrews in writing to them tells his readers, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And that's a it's a true statement. It's also a warning. It says, uh, get ready. It's on the way. And if you're thinking about bailing now, think again, because it's on the way. All right, before we do get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon His truth as we study. Shall we pray? Father, we thank You for this day. We rejoice in Your faithfulness. We thank you for the word of God and the joy and privilege that it is to assemble, to study, to feast, and to grow. Father, I thank you that this is a spiritual exercise whereby your Holy Spirit communicates with our human spirits. Father, we thank you for making all things possible. You've provided everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so we call upon your faithfulness once again this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. Allow us to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so two things that he says here in verse uh, 4 and in verse 5. One thing they have not done, one thing they have done. Both are a problem. (laughs) You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but it's on the way, so get ready. And then you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And that's the bigger problem. Because if they've lost track of the basics, if they've lost track of something so fundamental as our relationship to God the Father and how He disciplines us, then we are setting ourselves up for some big trouble when the real testing hits. And this is what we're dealing with here. And so you've forgotten. You've forgotten the doctrine of Philippians, or of uh, Proverbs chapter 3. You've forgotten the truth that God deals with us as with sons. And so get ready. Because our Father loves us and the testing is on the way. And so last week we were looking at these. I'm not going to repeat all what we did, but um, they, had, they had a record of some kind of suffering. Uh, we were told in chapter 10 that they had endured a great conflict of sufferings. They just not had risen to the level of martyrdom, to the level of bloodshed. But they had had imprisonment, they had the property confiscated, some of them had lost homes, and they, uh, they endured joyfully the seizure of their property knowing that they have treasure laid up in heaven, that there's property that can't be seized by people on this earth. Yet at the time of this epistle's writing, they had not yet suffered martyrdom. We also have a chain of things, and if we were really going to exegete this, we would probably spend several weeks going through the chain from verse 1 uh, to verse 3 to verse 4, all with hamartia, the sin or hamartii, the plural of sin, or sinners as they're presented here. Um, In verse 1, we're to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And in verse 3, Jesus endured hostility by sinners against himself. 
And in verse 4 we read that uh, the uh, recipients of this epistle were striving against sin. And uh, we put these together into a triple usage and we see this uh, exhortation. Lay aside personal sins, endure the hostility of sinners, resisting and striving even to the point of bloodshed. Anyway, there's a chain of hamartia usages there that are pretty interesting. Thirdly, last week, and I think this is the biggest issue so much so that I want to repeat it here today, although they were well-grounded in Old Testament doctrine, and that's clear, through 11 chapters, as the author mentions something, he'll mention a the wilderness experience, or he mentions an animal sacrifice, or he mentions Joshua, or he mentions a whole chain of heroes in, in uh, Old Testament heroes in chapter 11. And for all of these chapters, his readers, his recipients, are already familiar with all the subject matter. They're already on board. They're already accepting all this teaching. For them, it's review. Although they were well-grounded in Old Testament doctrine, the epistle recipients forgot a critical principle. And and he calls them on it. The Holy Spirit inspires this and says, you have forgotten Proverbs chapter 3. And you have forgotten that Proverbs chapter 3 is addressed to you as sons. The Christian way of life, or from their perspective as Old Testament believers, the redeemed way of life is still a father-son relationship. Even in the Old Testament. And so they had forgotten that. And the quotation here in verses 5 and 6 comes from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. This is even stronger than than, uh, Proverbs, actually. It's a bit of a free retranslation out of Proverbs. It's not even a, a Septuagint quotation. It's a free intensification. I'm going to double check that. It might be Septuagint. In any event, the language of scourging, the language of scourging is not in the Hebrew, but it is in the Greek, at least here, possibly Septuagint. I'll double check that. In any event, this is what the Father does. When you are saved, you are in a father-child relationship with the Creator God. And in that that father-child relationship comes discipline. And you cannot forget that. That has to be uh, in, in the forefront of your thinking. Don't just file it away in the back corner somewhere in a drawer and then forget about it. It's got to be front and center. Because this is what keeps us sane when the sin and the sinners and everything else is going insane. When the conflict has reached the point of bloodshed, remember, it's the Father who disciplines you. Those are not disconnected statements. They are very connected statements. Because... In every conflict, even in martyrdom, the real issue is not what man is doing or even what Satan is doing. The real issue is what is God doing. So maybe you are under affliction. Maybe there is a sinner out there that is persecuting you. And maybe it has reached the point of bloodshed. You are are coming to physical harm for your faith. Don't lose sight of the fact it is God the Father who is disciplining you. This disciplinary instruction is for uh, God's purpose, not the sinner's purpose. When he allows it, he has his own purposes for allowing it. And we're going to see this in the application in in verses 7 and following. And so uh, everything last week is leading into this week. 
We don't do a lot of exegesis or vocabulary in this hour, but uh, I, I want you to at least be aware of it because it's going to come up again today. In the Proverbs instruction terminology, it is so very clear, and it would be understood by any Jewish kid that grew up in this, in this from his youth, from his childhood. He would understand what Musar is all about. Musar is the disciplined corrective instruction. That comes from the verb yaser. Those are the verbs that are used in Proverbs. The verb yaser and the noun musar. Musar is disciplined instruction. It's not classroom instruction. It's not academic Bible study. It's disciplined instruction. And we understand the difference when we are teaching our children. We understand the difference in, in verbally telling them, uh, don't touch the stove. Uh, versus slapping their hand away, all right? Uh, there's a difference between an academic instruction and a disciplined instruction. And in some cases, the discipline comes and is even more intensified because you didn't learn the easy way, all right? And uh, God's going to teach us. And I recommend we learn the easy way instead of the hard way. But if we fail to learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn, then these are his remedial courses to teach us the content that we need. And it comes through discipline. Remember, discipline also uh, speaks of um, personal regimented structure. Not always just a punitive thing. It's not always just a, a punishment. Discipline is bigger than punishment. It can include punishment, but it's bigger than punishment. It is an enforced regimented structure. So we talk about having personal discipline. And those that are more disciplined in how they exercise, are more disciplined in what they eat, are more disciplined in, in I mean, we, can, we want to be disciplined in all areas of life. Musar encompasses that, as well as, of course, the punishment, the chastisement, the uh, correction that happens there. In the Greek, the verb is paiduo, and the noun is paideia, or paideia. And like I say, we don't do a ton of exegesis and vocabulary this hour. That's more for first hour and Wednesday night. But nevertheless, I think these are vital that you get the paiduo terminology, the paideia terminology. If you're a parent, you're commanded to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That discipline and admonition of the Lord. If you don't discipline your children, you're not following God's program design. We're going to see that today as well. So those were slides we had a week ago. Don't worry about what man is doing. Focus on what God is doing. Don't forget it and don't reject it. Proverbs says don't reject it. We have to embrace every discipline that God gives us. All right, so now all of that from verses 4 through 6 now comes into an application. And let's look at these verses in 7 through 11. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that's the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. All right, so this is what we have to cover here this morning, 7 through 11. Let's start with the reminder that it is for discipline that you endure. This is the purpose, the goal, the objective. We embrace God's purpose as discipline. That's why we endure. In other words, remember the Proverbs 3 exhortation and accept the purpose for our endurance. The purpose for our endurance. If we don't remember the purpose, how will we endure? How will we run with endurance the race that's set before us if we've forgotten why we're enduring? Because we're running and we get tired and we forget why we're running and we forget why we're tired. And then we start to wonder, why is this happening to me? And then we start to blame. It's not right that it's happening to me. This shouldn't be happening to me. And by the time we get to that step, we're already four or five processes beyond where we should have been. Because we've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And the language there is so parallel, you'll see it here in a moment, that it's addressed to us as sons. Um, No, I thought I could put it on the same slide, it's not. So we'll deal with that next. Don't forget the purpose for our endurance is the musar. It's the paideia. It's the discipline that God utilizes for our edification. So remember the Proverbs 3 exhortation and accept the purpose for our endurance is the musar, or paideia if you prefer, disciplinary corrective instruction of God the Father. The disciplinary corrective instruction of God the Father. And I know that's wordy and I know it's kind of verbose and wordy. All right, But it's, um, I think it conveys that disciplined corrective instruction. It's not classroom. It's, uh, it's hands-on. <laughs> right? It's paddle on backside. It's, it's, uh, it's corrective and it's disciplinary and it's instructive. We need to learn from it. If you don't learn the lesson, why would the spanking stop? The spankings are designed to teach the lesson. And if the spankings ever stop teaching the lesson, you need harder spankings. <laughs> as, uh, as I learned growing up, that there reached a point that my mother's spankings no longer hurt. But I didn't let her know that right away. Until one fateful day when my acting was over the top and she figured it out that my, uh, I was not an Academy Award winning performance on the, and when she learned that her spankings no longer hurt, she never spanked me after that. Because at, from that point forward, it was handed off to dad for his spankings and his hurt, his hurt, no matter how old you got. And so you have the, the impact there. If they don't hurt, what lessons are you learning? Are you, are you hearing the instruction? Are you modifying the wrong behavior? That's what discipline instruction is designed to do. So I'm going to call it disciplinary corrective instruction. And so, again, just put them side by side. The earthly thing that's happening, but the spiritual thing that's happening. I'm being persecuted. An unbeliever is doing something terrible. Maybe even harming me physically. Maybe even killing me. All right? That's on the earthly side. God the Father is disciplining me. Because he's permitting this to happen. He might have even directed this to happen. 
It might not even be a permissive will in undeserved suffering. It may very well be directive will in God's divine discipline. Because my walk is not what it should be. And, and it needs immediate corrective action. So the father gets out the, the board of education that can be applied to the seat of learning. <laughs> and this is what we get. So always remember the exhortation and always remember the purpose. And so learn the lesson quickly. <laughs> Embrace it. Own it. Don't live in defiance. That's what happens when you reject the discipline of the Lord. When you're in defiance saying, this isn't fair, this isn't right, this shouldn't be happening to me. Why is this always happening to me? And living in open denial about, I didn't do it. Nobody saw me do it. You can't prove anything. Well, he saw you. God knows everything. And so embrace it. God has his own purpose, that is, disciplinary corrective instruction for what he permits us to experience. This is what he permits us to experience. The Proverbs 3 exhortation is addressed to us as sons. Well, shouldn't be a surprise then that he deals with us as with sons. (laughs) Proverbs 3 is not addressed to illegitimate children. Proverbs 3 is not addressed to bastards. It's not addressed to unbelievers. It's addressed to born-again believers in Jesus Christ addressing us as sons. That's not a coincidence. It addresses us as sons because God disciplines us as sons. When we experience such discipline, it proves that God deals with us as with sons. It's a birthright. We recognize it. Wow, I belong to the Father. And it's better than a, you know... Something physical you can inherit from your father or whatever. You've got a mole on, on your back that your dad has the same mole on his back and your son has the same mole on his back. Great, all right? What else do you get from your father? Okay? We have a birthright. We have an inheritance from our father. It comes through Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. And to be a son means all the privileges of sonship and all the duties and responsibilities of sonship, which means discipline. So we do. We experience such discipline, and this proves that God deals with us as with his sons. And this, like I say, it's not unique to the church age. Um, these believers should have remembered this from their uh, time as Old Testament believers, as Levitical priests. In Deuteronomy 8, it's pretty explicit as it's spelled out here, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 5. Remember, the Exodus generation has died off. They've been in the wilderness all these years, and now the, uh, anyone that was over 20 when they walked through the Red Sea is now dead, except for Caleb and Joshua and Moses. And the uh, children now have become, they've gone from the Exodus generation now to the wilderness generation or the conquest generation. And um, that's how... Deuteronomy 8 begins, all the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
very, uh, I mean, it's analogous to our life, to our testing. That sure, we apply the Word of God when things are great. Do we apply the Word of God when things are tough? Do we apply in every circumstance as He tests us? It says in verse 3, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know. It says He let you be hungry. You had to know your need, so when He provided it miraculously, you would give Him the glory. Adam had to know that he was alone and it was not good before God would give him Eve, the helper suitable to him. And then when he provides, he provides something beyond what we could ask or think. They wanted quail, they wanted meat, they wanted what they had back in Egypt. They didn't even know what they needed. They just knew that they wanted. And God said, I'm going to give you something you didn't even know what it is. I'm going to give you something, you're going to call it, what is it? And manna means what is it? So he gave them a bunch of what is it and they ate the what is it for 40 years. And so the purpose for this, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Spiritual truth inside this earthly provision. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Do you have shoes that you had 40 years ago? (laughs) You must not wear them very often. You clearly didn't walk through the desert in those same shoes for 40 years. They did. In the same pair of shoes. It's amazing. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Again, the verb is yaser, the noun is musar, and this is uh, how God deals with his children. True in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament, true today. So don't forget the Proverbs 3 exhortation. We then reach a rhetorical question. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's a rhetorical question that answers itself, particularly in the light of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, Proverbs 13, Proverbs 19, in fact, again and again and again, Proverbs is very clear on disciplining from a parent perspective to a son, to a child. What son is there without paternal discipline? Well, again, Evan, you can answer because verse 6 here says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So there's a big clue. If there's no discipline, that means there's no love. The answer is the son whom the father does not love or the son whom the father does not acknowledge, the son whom the father does not claim or the son who belongs to a different father. All right, so let's take a look at these Proverbs. We're going to apply them to ourselves, and if you also happen to pick up some parenting tips along the way, that's extra credit. That's just icing on the cake. But we apply it to ourselves first of all. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son. Do you hate your son? Well, when you withhold the rod, that's what you're communicating. Does God hate us? Well, if he was to withhold the rod, it would communicate that. But guess what? He does not withhold the rod. God is very good at applying the rod to you and to me all day, every day, as needed. 
So he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And you start to understand the infinite degree of God's love and the infinite extent of his discipline that he is capable of disciplining us sufficiently because there's no limit to his love. And we see the, the corollary there, love and hate, withholding the rod, and disciplining diligently. Well, that's just one passage. I'm sure it doesn't mean that. <laughs> the skeptics who mock the Bible who say, well, you know, that was, that was back then. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son while there is hope. <laughs> All right. Of course, in human terms, we may not know and we may despair. But in divine terms, when does God ever lose hope? Never, right. And so when does God's discipline ever stop? Never. There actually can be a point, and in the Bible t- talks about this, because we're sinners, because we're human, because we're fallible, there does reach a point where there is no more discipline possible. And the parents lose heart, and they lose hope, and there's nothing left to be done. And it's pretty uh, ferocious in the Old Testament context, but the parents would take their children to the city gates and get help from the uh, clan and tribal elders and say, this is a rebel that will not listen to the instruction of the Lord. And when this was applied fairly, when this was applied legitimately, biblically, it was quite the uh, deterrent. (laughs) It uh, took care of a lot of the gang issues and youth problems and whatever else. I don't imagine it had to be applied too many times because an example or two puts the other kids on notice. But it says, while there is hope, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. God will actually administer even the sin unto death for born again believers, but he doesn't want to. And we're not to pray for that either. We pray that there can be repentance in the response to God's discipline in every, uh, in every circumstance. Proverbs 22.15. Okay, so it's more than one passage now. We've seen two. Here's a third one. Foolishness is bound up. This is Proverbs 22.15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's just a truth. It's a true statement. It's in the Proverbs. It's a short, pithy statement communicating God's truth. You say, not my child. (laughs) Yes, your child. My child, everybody's child. It's called being a child. Humanity in its infancy, humanity in its its, uh, childhood needs to be disciplined by the nature of what it is Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. See, it's intrinsic to what a child is. So if you hate your child and you withhold the rod, and instead you want to go with um, today's modern, postmodern insanity, (laughs) 
because the, the bookshelves were filled with human viewpoint expressions of satanic insanity and all of their um, helpful hints for raising children. You know, the ones you don't abort, that you actually let live and come into the world. Uh, that you then, the, the, I mean, the insanity. Uh, don't read those books, all right? You'll be, you'll be out of fellowship by chapter two. Probably chapter one. They don't even know the difference between boys and girls. I mean, they're just confused in our generation, okay? But Scripture says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The, the, the satanic lie says is that um, there's goodness and childlike innocence, and we can learn from the children, and we should follow their example, and we need to stop being so judgmental as hateful parents. And we need to start listening to these, you know, Swedish girls that come yell at us and say, how dare you and whatever. That we, we, have, we have a lot that we can learn from, from these juveniles. Wait a minute. <laughs> Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. It's got to be trained. God doesn't want to keep us in our childhood. He wants us to be disciplined because he wants us to be trained the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So it's true in the earthly realm, it's true in the spiritual realm. God didn't just save you so they could take a bunch of babies up to heaven when they die. He doesn't want to populate heaven with infants for all eternity. And in fact, his son is worthy of a better bride than that. He's preparing a bride suitable for Jesus Christ, like Eve was suitable for Adam. We saw that last hour. Wow, so we've got three passages now. Wait a minute, there's more. Chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. (laughs) You know? The the glutamus maximus is so marvelously designed. Not, Not an evolutionary accident. It is, it is a by-design feature with all the sensitive nerve endings so that every swat comes through loud and clear. And no permanent injury, no death. It's uh, there for a reason. So do not hold back discipline from the, from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You know, parents need to learn this. When we first, when Bob was first born, day one, within, I don't know, an hour of him of him being uh, in the world, they they gave us these little, you know, booties to put on his feet and little mittens to put on his hands, and Sharon and I were so tentative and cautious, and and you know we didn't want to break the kid. We were just putting the, and the nurse just started laughing at us. And she said, well, don't worry about it. Everybody, every new parent knows this, but the child, you can't break him. Put the booty on his foot. He's good. You know, and oh, okay. And so we grabbed the foot and he's fine. Anyway. You don't have to do that for the second kid, third kid. By the fourth kid, dress yourself. We're done, you know. <laughs> All right. Even better, though, not only will he not die, here's the, plus, here's the plus side of things, you shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul 
from Sheol. You actually rescue. That's a salvation term. You rescue his soul from Sheol. Train up the child in the way he shall go. You establish the boundaries. You establish the barriers. You give, you give uh, guidance. You give structure. And at a certain point when they're old enough, you give the gospel. Which just plugs right into all that structure and all of that love. Because what you're really revealing is the love of God. You're providing a God consciousness prior to the gospel hearing. There should be no question about sin. And when I was five years old, four years old, I knew I was a sinner. It was obvious. And so uh, the explanation about why I needed a Savior uh, was uh, streamlined pretty quickly. He will rescue his soul from Sheol. Wow, so that's one, two, three, four, four passages. Here's a fifth one in Proverbs 29. In verse 17. Correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Think about the benefits there. And uh, when the child is raised right, think about the fellowship, the, the capacity for doctrinal like-mindedness and fellowship. In any event, it's, there are benefits. There are benefits. I was pretty arrogant as a teenager and pretty... Um, I, a couple years where I was not living in the Word of God and not applying and uh, pretty convinced that my dad was the biggest idiot on the face of the earth because he didn't know anything and I knew everything. And then... Um, that all changed, like I say, that day that our firstborn, when, when, when Bob was born, my dad became the biggest genius overnight. All of a sudden, he knew something. All of a sudden, wow, I've got to ask him questions. and all, Just like that. The same, the same dad. My attitude was improved. So, the rhetorical question answers itself, particularly in light of Proverbs, what son is there without paternal discipline? The unloved son, or what uh, Hebrews is going to go into next, the illegitimate son, the bastard. Hebrews 12.8. Hebrews 12.8. If you are without discipline, just assume for the sake of argument maybe somebody is without discipline. What does that mean? If you are without something of which everybody has it, well, what does that mean? So if you're without discipline of which all, we can, we can understand in context, all legitimate sons have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The only conclusion is that the father isn't claiming you. You're not his kid. And uh, this is, uh, as I also shared, when I was the, there was not, I didn't have a single friend that, was, that had more strict parents than me. From church friends to school friends to Boy Scout friends, um, there was nobody I hung around with who had a more strict father than I had. Believe me, I looked. <laughs> and they weren't there. 
Probably because the kids with more strict fathers than me wouldn't let them be my friends. Maybe that was smart on their part. But when I would complain that, you know, Billy Bob or Jimmy or whoever, whoever's dad didn't spank them, my dad didn't care. So that's not my department. I'm not his dad. I'm your dad, and you're getting spanked. And so if you are without discipline, you should question who your father is and which father loves you and which father hates you. It's a legitimate issue here, a question of legitimacy versus illegitimacy. And that's another thing our culture has gotten wrong because postmodernism says there is no such thing as an illegitimate child. No person is illegitimate. And the idea of uh, you know being born out of wedlock uh, is is no longer the stigma that it used to be, and I think that's a that's actually a misfortune. Partaking of God's disciplinary corrective instruction is universal for legitimate sons. It says all have become partakers, but because it also says some are without, we have to. We have to interpret in context what what does all mean? All have become partakers. And for those that are not partakers, what, what actually are they? They're not sons. That's the answer. They're bastards, not sons. So partaking of God's disciplinary corrective instruction is universal for legitimate sons. It goes with the territory. The bastard is not an heir. In fact, He's not even a son. Not in the legal sense. Not in the, I mean, he's a biological offspring. But he's not a son. Not legally. The Greek word is nathos. Nathos, N-O-T-H-O-S. Only place in the New Testament where it appears is right here. The bastard is not an heir. For example, uh, the judge Gideon, his bastard was Abimelech. And Josephus even uses this terminology in his Antiquities of the Jews, book five. And I think if my clicker works, there we go. This is the works of Josephus, English translation and Greek text side by side. Gideon had 70 sons that were legitimate for he had many wives. So what makes the son legitimate? Marriage. But he also had one that was spurious. Nathos. By his concubine, Druma. Whose name was Abimelech. This comes to the issue of wives and polygamy, multiple wives and concubines within the scope of polygamy that are not wives. And the child of the concubine is anathos unless the father chooses to adopt and proclaim them a legal heir. His name was Abimelech, who after his father's death retired to Shechem to his mother's relations, for they were of that place. 
and goes on to describe the things there. It's actually a pretty gruesome story. I won't spend the time this morning looking at it, but if you go to Judges, well, we can, Judges 8 and Judges 9. I can, I can flip pages pretty quickly, and you're all tapping gas, glass anyway, so. Judges 8. Josephus is useful because he uses the word nathos. Uh, Judges 8 and 9. I think the Septuagint has nathos there. I don't remember. But in Judges 8.30, Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. I'm not sure where the wives lived or where Gideon typically lived, but Shechem was where he kept his uh, concubine. And she also bore him a Nathos, a bastard named Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. All right, so there, answered my own question, where he lived. So it came about, typical, when a judge dies, society just goes off the rails. As soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals, made Baal bereath their God. So the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to Gideon. The household of Jerubal was his other name, in accord with all the good had done to Israel. So Gideon's dead. What happens next? Well, maybe one of his sons will step up. No. Like I say, it's kind of gruesome, actually. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them, to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. See what he's doing here? He's going to his mother's clan, his mother's kinsmen, and rallying them for support against the legitimate sons of Gideon. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our relative. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows. There's always a few around you can hire. <laughs> the Belials in every town. And they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left for he hid himself. 70 legitimate sons, one bastard, and he went and he killed all of them. Anyway, one of the more gruesome things there. Let's understand the issue here. Anyone with a claim to rights and privileges as an heir must also be subject to the duties and expectations that go with it. We sing the hymn, I'm a child of the king, I'm a child of the king. Yeah, hallelujah. That means I'm getting disciplined. <laughs> it's not just kingdom glory, it's not just crowns and 
and uh, new wine and uh, eternal life and all the glories of the millennium and beyond. Presently in the church age it's tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You want rights and privileges? There's duties and expectations that go with it. Responsibilities of sonship. Not just the privileges. And many Old Testament passages feature this reality. We'll have many of these coming up in our Genesis series. Genesis 21.10, Sarah is livid because Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And she said, send this woman away. Meaning Hagar and Ishmael have to go. This son will not be an heir with Isaac. And the conflict there. Genesis 25 and verse 6, um, Abraham had to send he had, after Sarah died, he, uh, with Keturah, he had seven more children. They could not be heirs either. Abraham's uh, inheritance, his will was a little uh, complicated because it was bound up in the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> he wasn't really free to write his own will at that point. He gave gifts to the, uh, to the women, to Hagar and to Keturah, and to their sons. They were, they were provided for financially. They weren't you know, destitute. But the covenant was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it had to be Isaac alone to receive that. The sole heir of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 48, it's significant, verses 5 and 6, when he uh, swaps the hands around on uh, those grandsons. And when he promotes Manasseh and Ephraim, they were grandsons. They were both sons of Joseph. But he promoted them to full son status. He made them co-heirs with the, uh, as equal tribes with Reuben and Benjamin and, and uh, Judah and Levi and Simeon and all the rest. So uh, Joseph, the tribe of Joseph is a double portion blessing because Manasseh and Ephraim are full sons adopted by Jacob in his will. Even the even accepting all the children of the concubines also is a grace provision. Uh, Jacob didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. I believe God directed him to do that. But uh, remember there was Leah, there was Rachel. Each one of them had a handmaiden that they tried to manipulate uh, babies with. And they all became legitimate children uh, that they didn't have to be. But he adopted the, the handmaids, uh, the concubines' uh, sons as his sons. I think this concept is vital for us. Um, remember, it's marriage that makes it legitimate. It's, uh, it's, it's so much more than just procreation. It's so much more than uh, pregnancy and childbirth. It's the, the marriage relationship that sanctifies We have some of this doctrine that comes up in 1 Corinthians 7 as well, that even if Maybe you have an undivided marriage. One's a believer, one's not a believer. One believing parent can sanctify the children that are being raised in the divine institution of marriage. All right. In any event, the, uh, some of this is kind of lost on us, like I say. The, uh, the whole idea of legitimacy and illegitimacy and the percentages are scary for the children born today in our nation out of wedlock. 
Even the word wedlock doesn't mean anything anymore. And uh, that is to our nation's shame. All right, verses 9 and 10. We had earthly fathers to discipline us. Now we get the, the um, experience of childhood. The experience of childhood. And if we had good fathers or terrible fathers or missing fathers or whatever, whatever that experience was and however it could have been better or however it could have been worse, the experience of childhood is instructive. And it allows us to understand the spiritual reality. And for some people, the first loving father they ever have is when they get saved. Because they never had an earthly father that loved them or they didn't even know who their earthly father was. And then they get saved and they learn about a heavenly father and that's what makes all the difference in the world and it's a powerful lesson. But even for the, the children that grow up with believing parents, with loving parents, you still learn the lesson and you see the analogy. It's analogous. Earthly parenting is analogous to heavenly parenting. And, there's a re- and that's why he designed it that way. That's why he designed um, procreation that way. So that it would be a parent-child dynamic that would train the foolishness out of the heart of the child. So that once that's accomplished, believers can then understand what God is doing with them in their spiritual walk. Our earthly childhood experiences serve to illustrate our heavenly sonship blessing. And this can be useful. I, I recommend if, if uh, God blesses you and you lead someone to the Lord and, and you're the, you happen to be the evangelist that someone responds to and gets saved with, then uh, just right there at, at that first moment, on day one, just let them know. Welcome to the family of God. You are now a newborn. You're an infant. And it might be hilarious depending on who you're talking to and what they're, you know. They might be a PhD and they're a professor at the University of Texas and a PhD mathematician and the day he gets eternal life, he's an infant. He's a newborn. He can't even dress himself. Can't feed himself. Doesn't even know where to find the milk that he's longing for. So let's, let's, uh, let's use this childhood experience to illustrate our heavenly sonship blessing. Enduring our discipline is an expression of respect and subjection to God the Father. That's what it comes down to. He said, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Isn't it interesting how so many Christians disrespect their heavenly father because they are not in agreement with why he's disciplining them. It's not right, it's not fair. This shouldn't be happening to me. So as we endure, it is for discipline that you endure. It's the purpose. So we accept it, we embrace it. And as we embrace it, we don't have to like it. Scripture says we won't like it. It's not enjoyable, it's sorrowful, but it benefits us. And if we respect our Father, if we keep ourselves in subjection to our Father... In other words, what are we going to do? Run away? Leave home? Strike out on our own? How do we run from God? It is an expression of respect and subjection. And I like these terms. They're used in Proverbs as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10. So if you lose your fear of the Lord, 
you're not going to listen to the Musar instruction that he's giving you. That's the issue here. Enduring our discipline is an expression of God's purpose, working all things together for good. You know, if this discipline is his purpose, well then are we not reminded of Romans 8.28? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Ah. So the purpose of God is important. The purpose of God is his good pleasure. The purpose of God is our growth, which means our discipline. That's why he loves every son, or he disciplines every son whom he loves. And so it's uh, it's a blessing for us. Enduring discipline is an expression of God's purpose, working all things together for good. Because until he disciplines us, we're in a place that's not good. We're in carnality, we're in sin, we're doing something, we're displeasing him. We're, we're in some kind of thing. And the Father says, I need to work that together for good. Which means discipline. Which means manifesting His love in such a way that He works it together for good. That we learn the lesson and not go back. Understand sometimes, and we pray for this, sometimes we, uh, we pray because we have a loved one and they're in sin and we want them rescued and we pray, I mean... It's been long enough already, however long it's been, and so today would be the perfect day to get them out of that. We think today would be the perfect day to get them out of that. But God knows. We think God knows. And today may not be the perfect day. Today may be too soon. Maybe they're not miserable enough yet. Maybe they haven't learned through the misery yet. Maybe they need to be more miserable. And it hurts us to watch it We don't want to see it, but God knows what we don't know. And if he rescues them today, it might just be for a week or a month or a year, and then they go right back to it, and then they die the sin and the death. But if he rescues them six months from now, it's a permanent rescue. And they are completely repentant. And they live out their days in the Word of God, serving God, So rescuing us too early does not accomplish his good pleasure. Rescuing us permanently is a better rescue. And so if sometimes we express our discontent or we disagree, we think, hasn't this been long enough? All we're really doing is voicing our ignorance because we don't know and we can't know. God knows the end from the beginning. So we understand Romans 8.28. We understand Micah 6.8. Do we understand Micah 6, 8? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I would submit to you that this is a perfect parallel to Hebrews 12, where we run with endurance the race that's set before us, because we know we're not running alone. We're with Him. 
And walking humbly with your God means accepting His discipline each step of the way. This is good. And this is what the Lord requires. Our God has requirements. That's great. He has expectations. He has rules. He has boundaries. Requirements. You will be home by 9 o'clock. You will be home by 10 o'clock. You will be home by 11 o'clock. Or if you can get later, the older you get, unless you prove unreliable... And then you're going to get the earlier curfew. Treat you like a five-year-old if we have to. Okay? Anyway, he has requirements. What does the Lord require of you? Because he's a parent. He's a father and we're his children. You know, if, if there's no rules at all, what is that? The inmates are running the asylum. And I think that's how most of the postmodern child-raising books are. Just leave them free. They'll, they'll self-actualize. They'll self... Uh, it's all Jungian. Carl Jung and his demonic psychiatric philosophies. No, foolishness isn't bound up in the heart of a child. I don't want him to discover that. I want him to discipline that out of him. I want him to find the image of Christ. Walk humbly with your God. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. Discipline hurts. (laughs) It's not a party. It's not fun. It is not joyful. It is sorrowful. That's how it seems. Our subjective experience of, of discipline is not joyful. But afterwards... To those who've been trained by it. Afterwards, it's productive. Look what it's yielding fruit. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's productive. Discipline is momentary, so view it accordingly. Discipline is momentary, so view it accordingly. Remember, the momentary light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 when you're going through discipline, understand it's momentary. All discipline for the moment is not joyful but sorrowful. And there is an afterwards. Sometimes we don't think there's an afterwards. Sometimes we think this test is lasting forever. The longest test you'll ever live through is still momentary in comparison to eternity. Abraham waited 100 years to have Isaac. What's that? Momentary. Discipline is momentary, so view it accordingly. Accept the training and reap the eternal fruit. Accept the training and reap the eternal fruit. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Afterwards, those who have been trained by it. Afterwards. I got in trouble one time in the army. I think I told the story. I had a lieutenant that, that disciplined me and my buddy, two of us, took off and went somewhere we weren't supposed to go. And actually, we just left a place we were supposed to stay. So anywhere was where we weren't supposed to be. And um, so they dragged us back. <laughs> Didn't have to call the MPs. We were MPs. Dragged us back. <laughs> I don't remember how they caught us or where they found us, but 
The phone call came and we, we knew we were in trouble. We were both MPs and we, I guess we were arrested ourselves. We went back. And um, anyway, we ended up with extra duty. We didn't, uh, the whole company was being given a three-day pass, not us. We uh, forfeited that three-day pass. And uh, anyway, um, about three o'clock in the morning, I had time to confess and pray and consider. And the Lord showed me Hebrews 12. And I thought, wow, holy cow, that was written for me. And I went and I thanked that lieutenant. I said, Hebrews 12, 7 says, discipline trains me and I should be thankful. And uh, he was flabbergasted. That was beyond his army experience. <laughs> he had never had a private, private first class, whatever I was. He had never had a soldier thank him for being assigned extra duty before. Well, I've got to close with this. Romans 8, I think uh, the author of Hebrews was very Pauline and very much associated with Paul's travels and his writings and his teaching. I think he was very influenced by Romans 8. Romans 8, 16 through 19, the Spirit Himself. This is what we have as believers. We are sons. We are sons. And uh, verse 14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. We're not slaves, we're sons. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also. You see it's connected? You want to be an heir? That means you're a son. That means you're under discipline. That means there's requirements and expectations. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, and this is, a, not only is it a first class condition, it's an intensified if indeed, as certainly we do, suffer with Him with a consequential result that we may also be glorified with Him. God the Father will glorify us, so we will suffer because He deals with us as with sons. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's true environmentalism for you. (laughs) being born again, freeing this creation from Adam's sin. All right, Father, I thank you for Hebrews 12. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for opening our eyes to how you deal with us. You deal with us as with sons. And so you exhort us as sons. And we don't want to forget the exhortation which is addressed to us as sons. And I pray, Father, that if there's any of the fundamental basics that we've neglected or forgotten, or if we think we're too... We're too old to learn those old basics again. I pray, Father, that you open our eyes so that we do not grow prideful and forget what is the exhortation to us as sons. I thank you, Father, for this teaching. And I thank you also, Father, uh, on this day we're going to have our annual business meeting and I thank you for the saints of Austin Bible Church, for the members and non-members and and, uh, visitors and supporters. Father, uh, this is the day that we set apart to review the year behind us and look forward to the year in front of us. And I just want to thank you and praise you because you are so faithful, the God of all grace. 
And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we will